My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is on page 1,827 in the Pew Bible. 1,827. Hear these uh, words from the Apostle Paul. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, as, as most of you all uh, no, last week, um, last week I announced the name of the new pastor who is coming to serve Griffin United Methodist this coming June. Um, his name is Trevor Blair. He's a recent graduate from Duke's Thriving Rural Fellows Program. And there are a lot of reasons why I am genuinely very excited about this appointment for you all. And I really mean that as someone that cares very, very deeply about this church. And one of the reasons that I'm excited is because you all are going to have another chance to get to know a pastor that most likely has, has different strengths than I do. Uh, because being a pastor is, is like any job. It attracts a wide variety of people to the position, and some people uh, love and excel at certain aspects of the job, and others love and excel at others. And I haven't had a chance to meet Trevor yet, but chances are that our passions and our strengths won't line up exactly. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what kind of unique things and capacities he's going to bring into ministry here at this church. And uh, one of the strengths that... Who knows, maybe Trevor will have that I don't have is uh, consistent long-term planning. Things like mapping out programming well in advance and then sticking to it. And I mention that as a weakness of mine because, well, um, last week I announced a brand new sermon series that we were going to be starting for Easter. And this week I am announcing another one, um, a different one. Uh, and I'm sorry to disappoint you if you were really looking forward to scenes after the resurrection. Uh, maybe we'll circle back around to those stories at the end of this Easter season. I don't have an awesome reason for this change. Besides, I, I feel like maybe I was led towards a, a better idea, something I'm more excited about sharing with you all and that I think fits a little better with the kind of stuff we've been talking about throughout this Lenten season and this and Easter season as a church. So you all, the congregation, you can think of this as in one of two ways. You could think to yourself, Wow, our, our pastor is really struggling to pick a lane and just uh, and just stay there, which 
is fair. It's fair. Or you could think our pastor is just very willing to be led by the Spirit. Um, so hopefully I pray that it's, it's a little bit of both of those things. But I will leave the final determination up to you all. So if we're not doing scenes after the resurrection, what are we going to do? Uh, that's a good question. If you remember back to our Lenten sermon series, you'll remember that the, the general structure of those sermons is we would take a word, a unique biblical term related in some way to the concept of, of sin and brokenness, and we'd explore how that concept illuminated the problems in the world and in ourselves. We started with the very simple term for sin in the Bible, which means to miss. We looked at words like iniquity, which means uh, crookedness. We considered transgression, worldly power, systemic evil. And, and thinking deeply about all of these terms, hopefully, helped us get a sense of what the Bible has to say about the issue, the problem in the world, the problem inside us. Lent is a time of self-reckoning, a time of looking at ourselves without any, any rose-colored glasses on. Well, after Easter, after the empty tomb, in order to celebrate the empty tomb, we're going to take a look at, at God. Because the solution to our flaws and issues, the solution to our brokenness, is God's holiness. The solution to who and, and what we are is who and what God is. And so each sermon in this series, we're going to consider one word that the Bible uses to describe God. And we'll explore how the empty tomb epitomizes that aspect of God's character and how that uh, quality of God solves for the problems that we looked at in the season of Lent. Uh, this series is called God Is, dot, 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 exploring the character of God. And this one, you can write down, uh, write in your Bibles and your notes. I'm committed to this one. I'm sticking with it. Our, our Old Testament story for this week is, um, I think it's a very well-known story. It's one that I heard growing up, at least, a lot in VeggieTales and, and children's Bibles and that sort of thing. It gets referenced a lot and replayed and repurposed all the time in various forms. Um, it's one of those stories for how often it's told to children. It is an incredibly, incredibly tragic story. Um, two women come before the king, Solomon, and King Solomon in the previous chapter had just finished asking God genuinely and humbly that God would give him the kind of wisdom that it would take to lead the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, well. Two women come before the king, Solomon, and the first woman tells him just this horrible, tragic story. The death of a child is one of the most terrible proofs that the world is not yet as it should be. And a mother who accidentally kills her own child in her sleep, it just, it just ratchets up the horror of the events even further. And this first woman is claiming that the second woman, after discovering that her child uh, died, took her own baby, the first woman's baby, out of her arms and is now trying to claim it as her own. And this is just an, just an utter, utter mess. So Solomon ominously calls for a sword. What does this new king want with a sword? And he announces to the crowd, cut the child in two, don't give half to each woman. When Solomon announces this Horrible, horrible verdict. Cut the child in two. The first woman says, or the second woman, excuse me, says, so be it. So be it. Barbarically callous thing to say. Uh, if a somewhat sympathetic reading of this woman is possible, I think it begins with imagining just how broken and traumatized she is over the events of the past couple days, accidentally killing her own child in her sleep. It has warped her. It's fractured her psyche. She, she is not, in this moment, acting out of any kind of normal standard of decency. She's not acting out of love for anyone, surely not love for the child. The child that she loved has died. She is lashing out at a world that just seems purely hostile and, and, and painful. Her only goal at this point is to externalize the suffering and the hurt that she holds inside of herself, to make others feel as she is feeling, 
to, to drag everyone down with her. And I hate to quote the Batman at a time like this, but Alfred's description of the Joker just seems so apt to me. Some men, some women, they just want to watch the world burn. When Solomon announces his horrible verdict, the text tells us the first woman, the child's true mother, was deeply moved out of love for her baby. That's the translation, um, the NRSV, that I looked at this week. It's, it's a wordy but a thorough translation of the Hebrew. This mother's love for her child, who is her true flesh and blood, it outweighs every other consideration that she might have. It outweighs her desire to be the one that's going to nurse for him and to care for him. It outweighs her desire to be the one that's going to watch him grow up. It outweighs every single one of her own hopes and dreams. And her only concern at that moment is for the well-being of her child. She imagines his life cut short. Her heart breaks at the prospect of his imminent suffering for the experiences and the joys that he might be in danger of losing. All of her own considerations are no longer relevant. At the end of the story, Solomon, the wise king, recognizes this and restores the child to his true mother. Before we continue, I want to look at that phrase more closely, the one that the NRSC translates as deeply moved out of love for her son. Like I mentioned, it's maybe a bit wordy, but an effective translation of the Hebrew. If we were going to try to go with the most literal translation possible here, it would be something like her womb burn on account of her son. Her womb burn. Some of you may know, because I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it in the past, that when the Hebrew language wants to talk about anger, it uses the phrase that his nose grew hot every time. When the Israelites won't stop complaining to Moses, Moses' nose gets very hot. Uh, later in the sermon series, well, we're going to talk about the, the description of God as a God that is slow to anger. And hopefully you all will chuckle when I remind you that in the Bible, the phrase there is literally God has a very long nose. Um, it takes a long time for his nose to heat up. And in a similar manner, when the Bible wants to talk about compassion, it uses the phrase, one's womb burns. Compassion. When you are able to sympathize with the plight of another person, when the problems and the pain of, of someone that you love rises up before you, your womb burns. And yes, even men can be moved in this way, to compassion. It's a metaphor, after all, when Joseph sees how heartbroken his brothers are and repentant they are at the end of the Joseph story in the book of Genesis, the text tells us that Joseph's womb burns on account of his brothers. It's a metaphor. It's, it's figurative language. We can't take it literally. Uh, this is the way the Hebrew Bible um, talks about these things. But it is telling, I think, to realize where the biblical term for compassion comes from. It is intricately tied up and the unique kind of love, the unique sort of connection that a mother has for her child. And I do think that is a unique sort of love. That's not to say that fathers can't love their children passionately and powerfully, or that people that don't have children like don't understand love or something. That is not the case at all. Of course, all kinds of relationships are capable of deep and unique and special forms of love. But, but I do think that the most people in most cultures have recognized a unique kind of love, a unique sort of connection that exists between a mother and the baby that she has born out of her own body. It's, it's evident. You can see it. It's built in to the structure of the world. And here's what's really cool. Here's what's really cool. Whose womb burns the most throughout the entire Bible, do you think? What character in the Bible has their compassions deeply stirred like a mother for her child more often than any other character? It's God. The majority of the times that this phrase occurs, God is the subject. It's God whose womb is stirred 
that aches, that burns with sympathy and compassion for God's children and their suffering and their brokenness. And this this makes a lot of sense, right? Creation, humanity in particular, that's God's child. God created the world, birthed the world in a sense. And humans, well, God made humans in God's own image, after God's own likeness. And when God sees the pain and the suffering of creation and of humanity, of God's own children, God's womb burns with compassion and sympathy for them. When the Israelites are suffering under the brutal rule of the Egyptians, uh, they're forced into this back-breaking labor. Their own children are being, are being hurt and killed under Pharaoh's barbaric decrees. They cry out to Yahweh, and God's compassions are stirred. And so God raises up Moses to deliver his people. When the future kingdom of Israel, those built up out of those freed from Egypt, when they turn away from God, and when they forsake the commandments of the Lord, when they sin, God's womb burns again because God knows the pain and the suffering that is going to result from this decision. And finally, when exiled Israel is living under Babylon, when they again call out to God from their pain, at this point they're wondering in fear if their divine parent has abandoned them finally and once and for all, when they're wondering if even the love of God has limits, if even the love of God can only abide so much rebellion, and when they ask for forgiveness, God's womb burns and God promises them a Savior who would forgive all sin and would restore God's blessing to the nations. The Savior is Jesus, whose resurrection we are celebrating this Easter season. And Jesus is God's compassion made flesh, incarnate. His life, of work, his life work of healing and teaching makes it very clear. Uh, there's this wonderful moment in the Gospel of Matthew that I was debating using for our New Testament reading this morning. Uh, it's from chapter 9. And Matthew chapter 9 is an action-packed chapter. Jesus, in just one chapter, hears a paralytic. He gives someone their eyesight back. He gives someone their hearing back. He casts out a demon. And he raises a girl from the dead. And at the end of this chapter, in a sort of summary statement, the text tells us that Jesus was going through all the crowds, and he saw the sick, and he, and he was casting out demons, and he was forgiving sins. And at the end of the chapter, he stops, and he looks back at the crowds. And Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on them. He was deeply stirred on behalf of them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, the greatest example of Christ's compassion is is the passion. It's the cross. The story of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is one of those just absolutely outrageous and unbelievable stories that is in danger of becoming familiar to us, or at least feeling familiar, simply because of how many times that we have heard it. But I want to make sure that we realize that this story of, of God coming in flesh and dying on the cross, it was incomprehensible when it was first told in the first century, when it happened. Because everyone knew at that point that gods do not suffer. Gods do not die. Everybody knew that. Part of, that's part of what makes them God, it was thought, that they were removed and immune from the struggle of this world. They were above it all. But then the true God... The true God, stirred by a deep compassion for his creation, entered into the messiness of the world and was determined to experience and sympathize with everything that his creation was going through down here. He took it upon himself, and on Easter we celebrate his triumph over it and the resurrection, the fact that he will redeem it when Christ returns again in glory. When God God looks at, at you, when God looks at our communities, when God looks at those who are struggling, here and now in this world, in grief or in frustration. God's womb burns. God's compassion is stirred. The Lord empathizes with you and sympathizes with you like a mother that cannot bear to see harm befall her child. Because we do not serve a God who is removed from our suffering. 
We serve a God that entered into our suffering, that took it upon God's self, because God has compassion for us. He sympathizes with us in the most complete and the most powerful way. Out of God's compassion, he was willing to live and to die and to raise again for our sakes. Now, to begin drawing things to a close this morning, I want to briefly outline um, the two clear components of God's compassion that we've seen in the Bible so far this morning. God's compassion is kind of two stages, if you will. The first is this feeling. God's compassion is a strong feeling of sympathy with another. God seems to experience the plight of another person or group of people, God's self. He identifies with them and understands them. This, and this elicits a strong emotional response that the Bible normally describes as a womb burning. That's the first component. And the second component is that when this feeling comes, it is always followed up by action, by deed. When Israelites are suffering in Egypt, God feels for them. In English, we would probably say something. His heart breaks for them, and then God acts. He raises up Moses to deliver them from slavery. When Israel cried out of exile, God's compassion was stirred again, and God promised a Savior, coming as Jesus to right all wrongs. These two stages compose biblical compassion, divine compassion. They always go together in the Bible, feeling real sympathy and then acting on that sympathy for the sake of others. Our New Testament reading this morning from Philippians 2, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I'm just going to reread some of it for you now. Verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if there is any common sharing in the spirit, if there is any tenderness, if there is any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And then here's the key verse in verse 5. In your relationships with others, have the same mind. The Greek here is have the same attitude, have the same disposition, have the same way of interacting with the world as your Savior Jesus Christ did. And Philippians 2 continues to recount the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He was willing to be subservient even unto death, even death on a cross for our sakes. In Philippians 2, the reason why this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible is because this is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first establishes the great challenge of the Christian faith. We've spent this morning looking at our God and being moved and comforted by God's character and God's love for us, which is like a mother who loves her own children, going to any lengths to help them. And then Paul issues this great challenge. Let the same mind, let the same attitude, let the same way of interacting with the world be in you that was in Christ Jesus. As Christ church, we are called to mirror the character and the nature of God to our world. Now, we are never going to be able to do it perfectly on this side of total redemption, but we are called to do it to the best of our ability. And the character of God most fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ is our blueprint. It's our, it's our method. It's our directions for interacting with the world. And we, having received and experienced the compassion of God for us, must now consider what it would mean to mirror this compassion to the world. What would that look like? Well, I think it would follow these two steps. I'm really going to kind of focus on the first one this morning. I hope it becomes clear why. The two stages of compassion revealed to us by the witness of the Bible. And the first stage, remember, is to, we are called to cultivate feelings of empathy and compassion towards all of God's creation, all of God's creatures. And I, and I think, and the reason I want to kind of focus on this one this morning is I think there's a tendency to think of feelings as, as cheap or as not worth much. Um, like, like, come on, pastor, let's just move on to the second one with, you know, action, you know, we'll do stuff. Uh, we know that's where the meat is, but I, I disagree with you, actually, or if you think that, I guess I disagree with you. I, wa I want to pause here, because as Christians, we're called to cultivate 
feelings of empathy and sympathy. To become so acquainted with another person's situation, even someone that we don't understand or or don't like or, or don't know, cultivate sympathy and empathy with their situation until our heart breaks for them, our womb burns for them. We experience genuine sympathy and compassion for them. And that is actually not an easy thing to do in the slightest, especially, especially because so much of our culture is designed to do precisely the opposite at this moment in time, I think. There's so many voices and figures in our culture who want to destroy your ability to feel compassion, destroy your ability to empathize with this person or this group of people. Um, I, I... I lay the, the, the blame, as I often do, at the foot of, of news media as one of the biggest, biggest culprits, campaign ads, political social media posts that are, that are designed not to make you compassionate, but to make you angry. And one of the best ways to make someone angry is to give them an enemy, to convince them that this person or this group of people is evil, crazy, or unworthy. And if we're going to try to reveal this part of God's character to the world, the part that we have received and now must mirror to others, then the first step is to try actively to understand others' perspective, experiences, and situations. And this is, this is not an abstract thing. This is, this is a practice, a practical thing that you can begin working out in your own life today. In fact, you, consider, you can consider your homework for this week if you'd like to. It's been a while since I've given you a homework assignment. Um, it, it, this maybe is a good metaphor to, to help you kind of think about working this practice into your week. Um, in school sometimes, I don't know if y'all have ever heard this phrase. It's probably an English major thing, if I'm being honest. But, but teachers would talk about giving a book or an article or an argument, giving it a charitable reading. Um, and this means that you know, even if you are headed into some kind of writing or, or reading and you are 90% sure that you are going to disagree with it at every single turn, even if you know you're not going to like what this author is saying, before you start arguing with it in your own head, you try to see any and all merits first to try and understand it on its own terms. You generously try to see, well, what were they trying to get at? before you begin your counter-argument. And I I think this has an analogy to how we're called to think about and to treat people, giving charitable readings. When you run into someone that you don't agree with at all, that you don't like or you don't know, begin with this charitable reading. If you interpreted all of their actions in the most generous way possible, if you assumed goodwill and good intention until you were proven otherwise, if you really tried to understand why they think and do the things that they think and do, how might that change your interactions or your thoughts towards them. This is a silly example of how I've sort of tried to do this in my own life, but I really try to do this when I'm driving, um, and like someone someone cuts me off in the middle of the highway, and my initial response is to be like, what? You know, I, I can't say what you might say from, from the pulpit, but we, we know the feeling, right? We know the feeling. But if you could stop and think, what is the most generous possible reason I could give that person for why they maybe cut me off in traffic? Maybe... They are headed to the hospital for one reason or the other. Their child is being born or their, uh, their, their son is coming out of surgery. But start with that most sympathetic and empathetic reading possible before we allow ourselves to get dragged towards frustration or anger. We can constantly be thinking about how this process would allow us to cultivate that empathy and that compassion that we've been talking about this morning. And here's the amazing thing, is that if we can reach this level of compassion and sympathy, if we can learn to see others' situations through their eyes before we think about it through our eyes, then the action part, the doing something to help them, it's not that it will be easy, but the motivation for it will take care of itself. You will inevitably act to help them because you won't be able to help yourself. Once your compassions are deeply stirred, 
action comes naturally. Does a, like as, a, as a mother can, cannot help but seek the good and the well-being of her child over her own. This is a level of love for others that is, that is impossible without the active help of the Spirit and of Jesus Christ. But I firmly believe it's our goal that we are called to stretch for and to aim for. May the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.